So today our reading is going to be from Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to be beginning at verse 14. It says this, And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds, and all the reservoirs, and they will all turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just that, just, did, did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of the Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. So a nice, nice cheery piece of scripture to get us started today. I will say, talking about the plagues in a week was a really ambitious decision by me. I have, in my office, I have my board where I have the kind of different uh, sermon topics for each week and they get divided out and this week just said plagues and I'm like yeah I'll be fine I can do this in a week I cannot do this in a week that's why we did some of it last week uh, I'm going to do my best to do as much of an overview of the plagues as I can in this little bit of time that we have together uh, I said that we'd be spending more time on it today uh, the plagues actually this is something I've been quite dedicated to learning about for some time uh, I think Daniel has a picture a little, I did some method acting for the role actually um, let's see that's me dressed as Pharaoh uh, <laughs> you're welcome this is for our Awana camp a couple of summers ago <laughs> I, I was so convincing in my role as Pharaoh for what it's worth that Kevin's son Aaron actually said that he couldn't sleep that night because he was so scared of Pharaoh. So I'm like, well, good. You've learned your lesson there. If that's, that's aren't what children are taking away from church, I don't know what is. The, the pastor is terrifying. I just really threw myself into the role, you know. So we're looking a bit closer at the plagues of Egypt that kind of stretch from Exodus 7 to 11, four chapters, four quite long chapters where a lot of stuff happened. And I'm calling this sermon, Why Are the Plagues? Uh, quite a few of these ideas are taken from a podcast by The Bible Project who did a whole series on Exodus. Really interesting. If you're into podcasts, I recommend you give it a listen. But I think the why question, to me, is more interesting right now than the what question. Uh, I think quite a few of us will have learned about the plagues in Sunday school. Maybe we watched Cholton, Heston, and the Ten Commandments a long time ago. Uh, Christian Bale was also in a Hollywood version of Exodus, because this is a really interesting, compelling story. But I think the why is more interesting than the what. So why are the plagues? 
I did start to talk about this a bit last week, just to catch you up if you weren't here. We talked about how the plagues show God's power, they show God's dominion over everything, and specifically how it showed God's power over the gods of Egypt. These people have been suffering in Egypt for hundreds of years, and so to them it certainly felt like the gods of Egypt had a lot more power. They were listening a lot more to Pharaoh than they were to any of them. And each of these plagues actually shows God's dominion over the Egyptian gods. So Egypt has cattle, and they had a god of cattle, and a god that even had a cow's head. But, of course, they couldn't save the cattle from the pestilence. Uh, Egypt had Ra, who was the sun god, who even wore the sun as a crown. And yet God causes a plague of darkness. Ra is powerless in the face of our god. These plagues show God's power, but they also show God's people that God has not forgotten about them, that God has not abandoned them. God wasn't distant. He was present. God wasn't impotent. He was powerful, and he was acting on their behalf. So that's a little taste as to where we have been and where we are going. But one of the things that strikes me over and over again, and the more I read these, which I've been reading a lot of recently is what this does is show us just how seriously God takes injustice. Helena said, man, did you read my notes before you started praying, Helena? Because you were bang on. When we look at the world right now, I, I can't help but ask that question, why, over and over and over again. Like, why doesn't God do anything? We look at the war in the Ukraine, and we look at the oppression and the abuse of women in Iran, the people who are being murdered for uh, just asking for basic human rights. We can go on and on. There's a lot of suffering, and so much of it feels unnecessary, and yet it continues. And in those quiet moments, much like Helena said, I ask myself, like, why doesn't God do something? And the plagues of Egypt, I think, (laughs) show us how seriously God responds to cruelty and suffering and oppression. Let's let's go back to that reading that we just did. Let me read it again, because I think it's important. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to the Nile in the morning. As he goes out to the river, confront him at the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to say to you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. So those of you that have been traveling with us for the last few weeks will know what was happening in Exodus 1 and 2 and 3. Do do we remember the atrocities that are being carried out in Exodus 1? It's when children, when babies are being thrown into the Nile. This awful, awful atrocity. And the first plague is the Nile turning to blood. This is not a coincidence. These plagues begin with a reminder of the horrors that the Pharaoh has committed. It reminds us of the innocent children who have been thrown into the Nile. It reminds us that God saw it and felt it, that every name is known, that every heartbreak is felt, that every groan is heard. Like, of course the Nile turns to blood. How could it not? 
ultimately, all throughout this, it's a tyrant acting in tyrannical ways. Pharaoh has taken the gloves off. He's denied God with the same vocal cords and breath that are given to him by God, that only exist because of God. And he's used those vocal cords and used his power to issue these horrendous, oppressive, murderous commands. And God says, okay, like I have been patient. I have watched this for long enough. I've given you so many opportunities to make this right, to let people go. But if you want to play hardball, let's play hardball because <laughs> I'm better at it than you are. This is what the plagues do. And something that would have been very clear to the audience at the time, and maybe slightly less so to us, is just how central the Nile is to Egypt's economy. Yes, it is absolutely a reminder of the atrocities that have been committed. But also, this is the core of Egypt's economy. Remember that Egypt were the powerhouse of the world during this time. The Egyptian empire lasted from 3100 BC to 332 BC. That's nearly 3,000 years. To be clear, the beginning and the end of that is longer than the end to now. That's how long the Egyptians were. Like, There's so many dynasties of Egyptians. It hasn't been gone for as long as it was around. That's how powerful this empire was. And so much of its influence and its dominion had the Nile as their source. Every year, the people would pray and make sacrifices to their gods that the Nile would flood and nourish their crops. This river was the embodiment of a deity. It was seen as a deity in itself. It was the backbone of their civilization. So that river turned to blood. Not only is it a reminder of God seeing exactly what Pharaoh has done and the atrocities committed at his hands, it's also an assault on the economy of Egypt. The Nile turning to blood meant nothing could function. God says, I will halt everything because I've seen what you've done to those without power. And the point here is that this should be enough. There doesn't need to be more than one plague. That should be enough. That should be enough. But Pharaoh's heart was hard. We hear this over and over again. I'll get more to that in a second. But the plagues show us who God's side is on. It shows us how moved he is by these cruelties. My second point that kind of blends out the first (laughs) Is it's, it's a theme, so why are the plagues? Well, it's kind of a theme throughout the Bible, and it's really explicit here that when humans rebel against God, <laughs> when tyrants commit atrocities, when people in power use their power in ways that God doesn't want them to use it, things fall apart. Creation falls apart. Creation starts to be uncreated. I spent a lot of time reading about this. So I'm really excited about this, but I don't know how excited other people are. So I'll spend a moment here, and you can let me know afterwards whether or not you think it's interesting too. But 
things are inverted here. Things are the opposite of the way that they should be. So it starts with the Nile, this life-giving river, and instead it brings death. It is the opposite of what it is supposed to be. What's really interesting about this is that so much of the language that we see in these plagues is using the language of the creation found in Genesis 1. There's loads of words that repeat, and there's clearly something that the author of Scripture is trying to point out here. The second plague talks about the plague of frogs. Let me just read that briefly. Exodus 8.3 says this, Actually, two says, if you refuse to let them go, I will play your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come into your palace and in your bedroom and on your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into the ovens and kneading troughs. That's like a wild idea. I just, I just think oh, that's a crazy idea. God warns Pharaoh. This is a really interesting word that he uses here. He says that the land will swarm with frogs. This is the exact same word that is used in Genesis 1 when we hear that the waters swarm with creatures, you see. So they, the waters swarmed with creatures. And in Genesis, it's good and it makes sense. Whereas here, the land swarms with frogs. See, it's inversion. Things are breaking down. It's the exact same word, and it's deliberate. Also, like another thing that's going on is in Genesis 1, there is a clear division between sea creatures and land creatures, whereas frogs are kind of both. You see, creation is beginning to break down. In the next plague, Exodus 8, 16, and 17, we're told, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. So again, we're told to strike the dust of the ground. But the exact same word for dust is used there as the same one that God uses to form humanity. From dust you were made to dust you will return. Creation is splitting apart the seams. Dust isn't supposed to do that, and yet here it is. There's, there's a bunch that are really interesting. Uh, but the, the last one, I think, is the most potent. What, what are the first words that God speaks in the Bible? Let there be light. It's the first thing God says. So in Exodus 10.21, we hear this. Then the Lord said to Moses, straight out your hand towards the sky so that darkness may spread over Egypt, so darkness can be felt. So this is a terrible translation. What is actually said there in Hebrew is God says, let there be darkness. See, there's an inversion here. When we disobey God, things fall apart. Creation begins to unmake itself. And, and so often we, we view these things as a punishment. And, and clearly in Exodus, it is Pharaoh being punished for this. But often I think these things just happen as a consequence. When we don't honor the order that God has created, when we don't honor the way that things are supposed to be. Like Just for me, if I don't rest in a week and sometimes it's just tempted to do stuff instead of Sabbath, things start to break down. Things start to fall apart. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. God issues commands really early on about 
farming a field and then letting it be fa fallow. Fallow? It is fallow, right? Okay, good. Not a big agrarian. I don't think God punishes us for overworking the land. It's just creation breaks down. It stops working after a while. I don't think God is punishing us for that. I don't think God is necessarily punishing us for the way that we have treated the, human the environment. Uh, but it's very clear that when we don't honor and we don't steward creation the way that we are supposed to, things start to fall apart. Creation starts to fall apart. God has created these things with an order and a structure and a beauty. And things go terribly wrong when we don't listen to that. So another answer as to why are the plagues, I think, is to show us how wrong things can go when we, when we step outside of that creation that God has, has so generously offered to us. I, I told you there was a lot. And another question that I can't shake whenever I read this, and maybe you feel that way too, and this question that comes up and people have asked me, and I still don't have a really satisfactory answer, but bear with me. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Like, I really struggle with this. What do we do with that? Surely everything would have just been better if on their first encounter, God had just softened Pharaoh's heart then. Wouldn't that have made things easier? And as I say, I don't really have an overly satisfactory answer, but I don't think I'd be honoring the text if I didn't talk about this a bit. But the conclusion that I've come to, having read this and <laughs> having observed humans, I think, is that I don't think Pharaoh's heart was ever going to change. I think that power and cruelty and scarcity had forged and set his heart in such a way that there was no way he could change without creation just being torn in two. What's really interesting, and I only noticed this on my 8,000th read-through, is that for the first five plagues, we just hear that Pharaoh's heart was hard, obviously. It's only the latter plagues we hear that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And, and that's still a struggle for me, but I think what is happening there is that God is essentially hastening the inevitable. Pharaoh was never, ever going to let those people go. But he might have taken more time to think about it. And all that time, people are still enslaved. People are still oppressed. Parents are still fearing for the safety of their children. And so God decides to expedite the process. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. But it had been hardened later on, allowed people to see God's power but also know that they are heard and also hasten them being let go. I was, I was thinking about this and wondering if there are other like, examples of this throughout history, like other times that maybe God has hardened someone's heart to hasten an outcome. If we think that Pharaoh's heart was never going to change, so the only option is for God to harden it, Maybe that's happened elsewhere too. And whenever I think about history, I think about World War II because I learned about it for seven years in England, which is longer than World War II actually lasted. So, uh, But the British really like to focus on the six years where we were the good guys. <laughs> 
but we learn a lot about World War II, and one of the things you learn is in the early years of World War II, Hitler was winning, and that's a problem, that's a bad thing. And perhaps the real turning point of the entire war is when Hitler decided he wanted a war with both Western Europe, so England and its allies, uh, and Russia, so going both east and west. This war on two fronts, as it's called, is something that Germany was ultimately unable to sustain and really eventually led to the defeat of the Nazis. The thing is, it doesn't really make sense to fight a war on two fronts. This is a terrible idea. He probably could have slow-rolled it and won both eventually, but Hitler's stubbornness and self-assuredness and hard-heartedness meant that he waged on. And I wonder, like, did God harden Hitler's heart in that moment? Like, I don't know. There's, this is purely speculation from me. But Hitler was clearly past a point where he wasn't going to turn around. He wasn't going to repent. This, this thing wasn't going to fix itself. He wasn't going to see the error of his ways. Maybe God says, okay, I'll harden the heart to make this horror end quicker. Perhaps the only way for the people to be free in Egypt was to see the horror that Pharaoh's decisions had made. Whenever, whenever I preach, uh, I always have this earworm that says, all people really need on a Sunday morning is to walk away knowing that Jesus loves them. That's, that's what I think you most need. That's what I most want to share. That's what I want people to walk away with. And I worry about sermons like this because I don't think that really, they don't do that. <laughs> we, we understand more of God's heart, and that's a good and a beautiful thing. We see the way that God has acted, and that's exciting. But deep down, what we all need to know is just how deeply and richly and perfectly Jesus loves us. And so I worry about sermons that don't get to show that. But one of the things as I was praying about how to end this thing is, is reminding myself that, that Jesus changes everything. Like, I cannot stress this enough. Jesus changes everything. God's relationship with creation and humanity is different now because of Jesus, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That changes everything. It's not that what happened in Egypt and these plagues doesn't matter. It does. It tells us about God's urgency to set the captives free. It tells us at his disgust and horror at injustice. But Jesus changes everything. So I don't think rivers will turn to blood anymore because Jesus changes everything. And I don't think we'll see darkness and frogs because Jesus changes everything. Like, I don't want this to be a cop-out. I don't want it to be like a last-minute swerve or a non-sequitur. But we need to view all of Scripture with that lens, with that understanding that Jesus has changed everything, that that relationship is restored and we are reconciled in a way that humanity was not reconciled when this was written, when people were understanding who God was then. This still matters. It's still important. We're still going to spend time there. But Jesus changes everything. So, if you are at the end of this, and if you're reading Exodus, and a few people have actually done that, <laughs> like, go back to Jesus every time, every time. That's where we've got to circle back to. So, God cares, and God hears the cries of the oppressed, and, and Jesus is ultimately the answer to that.
and Jesus sees the hardness in hearts and sorry God sees the hardness in hearts and Jesus is ultimately God's answer to that and he sees cruelty and oppression and Jesus is God's answer to that so we get to pray and we get to learn but we get to remember most of all that Jesus changes everything let's pray Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself throughout history. We thank you for the ways that you act on the behalf of the silenced or the lowly or the unheard. We thank you this has been your heart always. Lord, we pray that we too honor your heart. That we treat creation, that we treat one another in the ways that you instruct. And Lord, where we fall short, we pray that we can look to you and look to Jesus. Always and forever. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.